Thank you for choosing to listen to the Emmaus Radio Ministry Podcast. Each of these messages were given by various faculty, staff, and friends of Emmaus Bible College. To view each series as a whole, or for more information about similar Emmaus ministries, please visit concerninghim.com. That's C-O-N-C-E-R-N-I-N-G-H-I-M.com. Welcome back to our study of the Gospel according to Matthew. We will spend our time in this episode giving an overview of the next two chapters. So let's orient ourselves to where we are in the Gospel of Matthew. Chapter 8 begins a new subsection in Matthew. We were introduced to the beginning of Jesus' ministry in chapter 4, which concluded with a kind of rounding out statement concerning Jesus traveling around, healing all those who were brought to him, and the response of the crowds being attracted to Jesus. Uh, 4, 23 to 25 reads, Jesus went throughout Galilee, teaching in their synagogues and proclaiming the good news of the kingdom and curing every disease and every sickness among the people. So his fame spread throughout all Syria, and they brought to him all the sick, those who were afflicted with various diseases and pains, demoniacs, epileptics, and paralytics, and he cured them. And great crowds followed him from Galilee, the Decapolis, Jerusalem, Judea, and from beyond the Jordan. We have a similar division marker at the end of chapter 9, specifically verses 35 to 36. So notice how similar this sounds to what we've just read. 9.35 through 36 reads, Then Jesus went about all the cities and villages, teaching in their synagogues, and proclaiming the good news of the kingdom, and curing every disease and every sickness. And when he saw the crowds, he had compassion for them, because they were harassed and helpless like sheep without a shepherd. This marks off chapters 5 through 9 as one big unit. We just finished exploring the first half of this unit, traditionally described as the Sermon on the Mount in chapters 5 to 7. So then what we have left here is this remainder, chapters 8 to 9, which form a whole unit together, and they're mostly filled with miracle stories. Matthew has moved these around to emphasize Jesus' healing ministry. It's worth pointing out at this point that Matthew isn't claiming that these are strictly chronological, like he came down from the mountain and then he did miracle one, then two, then three, then four, and and so on. This um, kind of lack of concern for chronology and preference for categorization by theme was common in ancient biographies. Um, We can read about it in the lives of other um, important Uh, figures in Roman history. So we don't need to worry about accusations that Matthew is being inaccurate, particularly when we compare him with other Gospels. This is a feature of uh, the biography genre in antiquity, which was well used, that you were allowed to move things around if you wanted to emphasize a certain theme about a person. In fact, we have about half of all of the miracles in Matthew here in these two chapters. Matthew has squeezed these together to give us an almost like a machine gun-like approach, one miracle right after another. Now, I say he squeezed them in because he seems to be using Mark as one of his literary sources. When Matthew wrote his gospel, the current predominant theory is that Uh, Matthew is using Mark as he composes his gospel, but when you compare those two, uh, D.A. Carson points out that Matthew tends to abbreviate Mark, uh, mostly when it comes to miracle stories, so that they're about half as long as uh, the corresponding version in Mark. So what what Matthew has done is taken a lot of Mark stories and compressed them highly and squeezed them here into two chapters. 
Now there are nine or ten miracle stories depending on how one counts. The difficulty is the account about Jairus' daughter and the woman with the issue of blood, if you're familiar with that story. Uh, from one perspective, of course, there are two healings. The girl gets healed and the woman gets healed. But from another perspective, they're so intertwined that it's really just one story. So if we take it as one story, then what we have is uh, three miracle stories. And they're organized into three groups of three. And between each group of three, we have intervening material about discipleship. Specifically, we have uh, the following. The unit begins with Jesus healing a leper in 8, 1 to 4. And then in 5 through 13, he heals the centurion's servant. And then in 14 uh, through 17, we have Jesus healing Peter's mother-in-law from a fever. And then there's this concluding statement uh, with a citation of Isaiah 53. Again, like I said earlier, he, he has uh, a break which talks about would-be disciples and how important it is to uh, be willing to make sacrifices in order to be Jesus' disciple and to expect uh, that sometimes we won't be welcomed places. In verse 23, we get another um, round of stories. We have the calming of the storm in 23 through 27. In 28 through 34, we have the healing of the two demoniacs. And then in chapter 9, verses 1 to 8, we have the healing and forgiveness of the paralytic. And then again, after that group of three is finished, we have uh, the call of Matthew and how uh, and the paradigm that he presents for us in discipleship. Then another round of three miracles begins with uh, Jairus and the woman is kind of story number one. And then we have the healing of the two blind men. And then we have the healing of the uh, mute man. Uh, from chapter 9, verses 32 to 34. And then, as we just read earlier, we have this concluding statement about discipleship, Jesus wanting to heal, but lamenting the fact that there aren't uh, enough disciples to sufficiently help him. So, uh, before we move on and actually dive into this, uh, in, into 8.1, which we'll do in a next uh, episode, uh, there are a few important lessons to learn just from the way Matthew has put this material together. First, he has presented Jesus as the great authoritative teacher. Uh, that was in chapters 5 to 7. The people rightly responded at the end of 7 in 28 to 29 that they were astonished at his teaching, for he taught them as one having authority and not as the scribes. But back to back with this, Matthew then places these 9 or 10 miracle stories to show that Jesus is not only a teacher with authority, but he's also a miracle worker with authority. So the issue of, of authority is specifically brought up in the exchange uh, with a centurion, where he says, I also am a man under authority. I say to this one, go, and he goes, and to this other one, come, and he comes. And the point there is that Jesus is the one with authority to heal, even from a distance. So Jesus not only reveals the true intentions of God for how he expects people to act, but also the will of God in showing compassion and salvation to those who are needy. This also forms a kind of balance with some of the harsh statements that we heard about from the Sermon on the Mount, particularly in our last episode. We talked last time about how, well, on the one hand, we can't water these harsh statements of Jesus down. And yet, they must be seen in perspective as a piece of a very important puzzle. Uh, from just the Sermon on the Mount, a person might get the impression that the kingdom of God is only about being good, doing what's right from the heart. But these stories uh, form a counterbalance in that regard, the ones that we read about in chapters 8 to 9. They record accounts of people who see their need for Jesus, 
acknowledge their own unworthiness in some way, but nonetheless still come to Jesus for healing. Now, the healing is physical healing, of course, and we don't want to allegorize the text, but the Lord's work of spiritual healing is also saying something about what we might call spiritual healing. The centurion's faith, for example, not only results in physical salvation for his servant, but is also the basis upon which he will eat and drink in the end times meal in the kingdom of God with Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. Similarly with the paralytic, it is faith which causes him first to announce, uh, your sins are forgiven you. And then as proof that spiritual salvation has taken place, Jesus affects the physical salvation. We could also consider the exchange with the people who are upset about Matthew and his party that he throws for Jesus. Uh, the Lord responds to their objection that he eats with sinners and tax collectors, showing his acceptance of them. And he says, those who are well have no need of a physician, but those who are sick. Go and learn what this means. I desire mercy and not sacrifice. So we are following Matthew's lead here when we draw some sort of a connection between these stories about physical healing and the doctrine of salvation. And we notice that this forms a kind of balance with the Sermon on the Mount, since in these healing accounts we have unclean, unworthy people simply coming to Jesus in faith, and in response to that faith, he heals them. In fact, there's a little tidbit of information about half of all of Matthew's occurrences of faith occur here in these two chapters. So the miracle stories are important because they present to us a complementary piece of the puzzle regarding Matthew's description of salvation. The miracle stories are also important because of what they say about Jesus and who he is as the Messiah. These accounts are all preparing us for places like chapter 11, where Jesus will quote from the Old Testament to show that all of his miracles demonstrate that the kingdom of God has indeed arrived and that Jesus really is the coming one. In other words, the prophets describe a time when God rules and the exile is over as a time of peace and prosperity and flourishing where there's no sickness, there's no famine, there are no more natural calamities. Jesus demonstrates that he has the power to affect this kind of a change in, in well, these microcosms of kingdom reality. So it's important to see all of Jesus' miracles within this kingdom context. So if we imagine ourselves, let's say, living in the first century world and Someone says, the time is coming. It's almost here. In fact, in a way, it is here when there will be no more sickness and no more sadness and no more crying. Well, that's a tall order. But Jesus shows that these promises are not only capable of being fulfilled, but are in fact already here. In fact, we could uh, look forward a little bit to Matthew 12, 28, which is helpful in this discussion, where Jesus says, if it is by the Spirit of God that I cast out demons, then the kingdom of God has come upon you. But the miracle stories are important for another reason. I mean, on the one hand, Jesus' motivations for conducting such a large, miraculous tour is theological, uh, specifically eschatological, the study of the end times. He wants to show people that the kingdom of God is arriving. But, you know, on the other hand, Jesus has more on his mind than eschatology. He emerges from these descriptions as a man of compassion. These miracles show us something of Jesus' stance towards the needy. We will encounter in these chapters again and again 
people who are suffering and people from whom most in society would have just turned away. And Jesus doesn't have, well, his own ministry simply in mind. Uh, He has them in mind. He cares about real people and not just theology and his Uh, the mission that God gave him. He is people-centered. So this is foregrounded in the first story in which the leper says, if you are willing, you can make me clean. What the leper is concerned about is if Jesus will turn away in disgust. Does Jesus actually even want to heal him? Jesus is willing and, in fact, is so tender with the man that he touches him to bring about the healing. I can't help but like the way that Matthew puts it in 8.1. When he had come down from the mountain, great multitudes followed him. And behold, a leper came and and worshipped him. The Lord Jesus has given this glorious, uh, epic sermon in Matthew 5 through 7. But the time then comes when he has to get down from the podium, step down off the mountain, and there real, dirty, unclean, needy, suffering people are waiting for him. And he doesn't turn them away. He is the Messiah in word, in 5 through 7, and also the Messiah in deed, in chapters 8 through 9. Let me say one more thing about the overall structure of this subunit in Matthew. I pointed out earlier that Matthew has crammed this section full of miracle stories. He has squeezed about half of them into these two chapters. And yet, these nine accounts are in groups of three, each one ending with something to say about discipleship. So Matthew has crafted this material about Jesus' miracles and their end times and messianic significance, and he's interwoven statements about discipleship. That, in and of itself, is worth meditating on. Let's chew on it for just a moment. Matthew's account of Jesus is not just, wow, look how great Jesus is, as if from a distance. No, when we see him stooping down to minister to the needy, we are seeing our great teacher leading by example. We were introduced to the topic of discipleship, you may recall, with uh, the summons in chapter 4, follow me and I will make you fishers of people. That was the end of chapter 4. And in the next unit, 5 through 9, we have Jesus as uh, the master fisherman in word and deed. Uh, He fishes for people in his preaching and his teaching, but then he's also fishing for people in his ministry of compassion in chapters 8 to 9. Being a disciple will involve following Jesus in both of these ways. Now, certainly different people are called to different kinds of ministry, but at the very least, we can say that every true disciple of Jesus, every one of them must be a fisher for people. This requires us to be passionate about the correct communication of Jesus' teaching, and it also requires us to become passionate when we see people suffering around us. Thank you for listening to the Emmaus Radio Ministry Podcast. This ministry is possible because of the generous contributions from our partners around the world. For more information about partnering with us, please visit emmaus.edu partner.